0: Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. One might feel tired after just reading Catherine Hayhoe's resume, much less living it out, with a Ph.D. in Atmospheric Sciences and over 100 academic publications to her name, she is now the chief scientist at The Nature Conservancy and a professor at Texas Tech University. Perhaps though her greatest public impact has come by helping to communicate climate science to a wide range of audiences. She has delivered a TED talk viewed millions of times, she hosts a PBS digital series, and has written popular books, the latest of which is called Saving Us. Amid that busy schedule, Catherine was able to find time for a visit to the porch. Up next, we discuss everything from her being in the spotlight at the White House to email scandals and end times eschatology. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, welcome to the Front Porch Republic and the Brass Spittoon podcast.
1: Do I have to bring my chewing tobacco?
0: (laughs) You do not. You do not. Well, here at the BS, everyone gets the same opening question. So here it is. What does home mean to you? So
1: for me, home is Southern Ontario. I grew up spending all my summers on the Canadian Shield up in Lake Country, running through the pine forests. And so when I smell a pine forest on a hot day, that really means home to me.
0: But you are now in Lubbock, Texas, home of very few pine forests, as I recall.
1: Correct. Although there are a lot of juniper trees around.
0: <laughs> Bad for the allergies, uh, maybe not as good for the memories. Hmm. And you were also, I believe, a missionary kid for a while. Is that I true? Am. Grew up When all, we were nine years old,
1: my parents moved down to Columbia in South America. Um, so I spent a number of years there growing up.
0: And you now have a long string of academic accolades and publications to your name. I uh, do not have the expertise to ask you about those. But on a more accessible level, you also have a long string of man bites dog storylines as part of your journey. So let's talk about that instead. First, you're a female in a scientific world that still skews male, I would assume. Has that presented any challenges, difficulties during your career, any Me Too moments or any inspiring mentors to Laude?
1: Uh, both actually. So my undergraduate degree is in physics, which as you know, is, is, and remains very male dominated today. And I remember in second year university, I was not doing so well. I had sort of hit a wall. There was a lot of challenging courses. To be totally honest, I don't think I'd developed the study skills that you really needed to succeed. And I was worried because I was about to lose the scholarship that was paying for my tuition. And I was absolutely in despair when one day I got a note saying that the chair of the physics department wanted to speak with me. Now, this was a huge department. It was about, you know, more than 10 floors of the building. It's one of the biggest physics, probably the biggest physics department in Canada. And the fact that the chair of it wanted to speak to me, a lowly student, was scary and frightening. I didn't know why. I expected he was gonna call me in and kick me out of the program. So I went in, and fear and trembling, and he sat me down in his office and he said, we need more women in physics. I've noticed that you've been struggling this semester. What can I do to help?" I was completely overwhelmed that he would have even noticed something like that, let alone reached out to me. And so I confessed, probably tearfully at that time, that I was in danger of losing my scholarship. And he said, well, if you do, you could apply for an undergraduate research fellowship where you work in the summer and the amount you make is adequate to pay your tuition. And here's an application form. Why don't you give it a try? So I did and I absolutely fell in love with research. And that's what encouraged me to become a scientist was when I found out just how amazing it is that you are able to make discoveries. And originally I was working in astrophysics, but just to figure out how this world works and the fact that you yourself can take the observations and analyze them and figure out what's happening is just phenomenal. And so I ended up losing my scholarship, but I got the research fellowship and that was the beginning of what brought me to where I am today. But on the other side of the coin, though, it is true that only a small fraction of us in the earth sciences are women. So when I became a professor, only 13% of us were women. That number has changed. It's up to 25% now. But in order to reach gender parity, we won't be there until past the 2050s. And So unfortunately, subsequently in my career, I've experienced many situations that are well-documented by research that shows that a woman has to publish more papers, get more grants, achieve much more than a man in order to be judged as equal. And I've certainly experienced that in my own career. And I know that's experience that many other women have had as well.
0: Next up, you are a Christian in science. You are even married to a pastor, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the two of you co-authored a book over a decade ago called A Climate for Change. Global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. And on the first page of that book, you and your husband write this. Bike to work, hug a tree, eat granola, live off the grid, wear hemp, bathe in a stream, and worship the earth. We often find ourselves labeled just because we think global warming is a serious problem people should know about. But here's who we really are. We're Christians. We don't worship the earth. We worship the creator of the universe. We believe that God spoke the world into existence and sustains it by his power, We believe that Jesus Christ is the way to eternal life, that the Bible is God's word, and that nothing compares to the importance of the gospel message. So with that rather clear statement of your own faith, how has that played out for you? The religion versus science trope is long running, if sometimes overblown, but how has that played out in your life and career?
1: Well I will tell you when my husband and I first wrote that book together um, over 13 years ago I think now I was worried because you hear a lot about how science rejects religion and so I thought to myself am I flushing my career down the toilet? I've worked so hard. I've built up my research, my publications, all of the different measures and metrics by which academics and scientists measure each other? And is all of that just going to be flushed down the toilet when I tell people that I'm actually a Christian? I have to tell you that I was completely wrong. I was totally off base. I have received so much support from my fellow scientists in the community. Some of whom say, I don't share your faith, but I completely support what you're doing. And many of whom say, I do share your faith. And because of that, I'm starting to have conversations as well. And in fact, Elaine Eklund is a sociologist at Rice University. If you haven't spoken with her, I would highly recommend doing so. And she studies science and scientists and faith. And she has found that in the United States, 70% of scientists at top research universities describe themselves as spiritual people. 70%. 50% identify with or adhere to a specific religious tradition or belief, they would say, I am a, I am a Christian, I am a Hindu, I am a Muslim, I am a. And of the 30% who identify as atheist, 20% of those insist that they are spiritual atheists. So The whole idea that there's this massive conflict between science and faith is not borne out by the data. And as a Christian, I don't think it should be borne out by what we believe either, because if we truly believe that God created this amazing universe that we live in, then what is science other than trying to figure out how God set it all up, right, to work? So from the scientific community, I can literally count on the fingers of my two hands the number of hateful, demeaning, disparaging messages that I have received from scientists because of my faith over the last 10 years. I can count them on just the fingers of my hand. But I need all my fingers and all my toes, and then some, to count the disparaging, hateful messages that I receive from people who self-identify as Christians on a weekly basis, because I am a scientist and I say that climate change is real and that breaks my heart because in the gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, this is how people will recognize you. Not by your judgment of others, not by your hatred of others, not by the way that you put others down because they don't agree with you. Jesus says, no, the way that you will recognize, people will recognize you as my disciples is if you love one another by your love for each other. And so I just think it is absolutely a horrifying statement on where people are today, that they think that an expression of their faith is to call somebody who self-identifies as a Christian, as they do too, the most foul names that you can possibly imagine, just because they're saying something that their political ideology, not their theology, their political ideology disagrees with.
0: Well, and politics does seem to be, in many ways, the religion of our day, mm-hmm. and um volume, its great sacrament, as opposed to love, perhaps. So let's talk a little politics. You are probably the only person I know of who has collaborated about climate change awareness with both Barack Obama and Newt Gingrich.
1: Well, I also led um, the climate science section of the National Climate Assessment under the Trump administration. So I would like to add that to the list, too. (laughs) Trifecta. I truly believe that A thermometer is not Democrat or Republican. It does not give you a different answer depending on how you vote. Climate is changing, the impacts are serious, they affect all of us no matter where we live and no matter how we identify politically. So a hurricane doesn't knock on your door and say, excuse me, who did you vote for in the last presidential election before it floods your home? Uh, A wildfire doesn't knock on your door and say, are you a registered Republican, Democrat or Independent before it burns down your house? climate change affects all of us. And to care about climate impacts and to support sensible climate actions, we only have to be one thing. And that one thing is simply a human being living on this planet. And so whenever I have the opportunity, I want to share this message with everybody to help them understand that climate change is not a partisan issue, that there are solutions across the entire political spectrum. And rather than one half of the political spectrum simply saying it isn't real and bowing out of the conversation, we need to hear what conservative solutions look like. We need to hear what free market solutions look like. We need to hear what libertarian solutions look like. We definitely need to hear what bipartisan solutions look like. And we need to hear, of course, what Democrat solutions look like, what left solutions look like. We need to hear about solutions across the whole spectrum to figure out how we can tackle this problem in a way that benefits us all.
0: A lovely answer, but you dodge. I want some particulars here.
1: Sure. Well, I was not dodging <laughs> at all, <laughs> um, but um, a number of years ago, I was asked to give one of the talks at an organization that was then called Republicans for Environmental Protection, now called Conserve America. And one of the people who was also giving a talk there was a man called Terry Maple, who had written a number of books with Newt Gingrich. So they had a contract to write a new book with Johns Hopkins University Press, which is an academic press, on um, environmental entrepreneurs, on people who were thinking of and implementing solutions that helped with the environment and also helped, you know, growing jobs or helped economically or, you know, advanced our technology. So they asked me if I would be willing to write the first chapter of the book, which explained why we have a problem in the first place. Why is climate changing? How do we know humans are responsible? What are the impacts here on us too? Um, Also, how is the biodiversity crisis affecting um, us as humans? And then sort of teeing up why we need solutions for the rest of the book. So I wrote the chapter and I sent it in and I didn't really hear anything back. And I wrote again, you know, just making sure you got the chapter. Is the book still in press? Yes, it's just been delayed. We're just waiting for some other chapters. And then Gingrich decided to run in the Republican primaries. And he decided that having a book on environmental entrepreneurs was not you know going to help him in the primaries because the primaries of course tend to skew to the extremes on both sides. And so in one town hall he was actually confronted by a woman who said You know how can you be saying that you're running but you're writing this book where you have a climate scientist and he said oh no we're not you know she's not in the book we're getting rid of her well that was the first i had heard about that (laughs) considering i'd already written the chapter more than a year ahead of time and that kicked off a huge wave of hate mail you know and and comments from everybody from rush limbaugh to anonymous commenters in my inbox accusing me of all kinds of crimes, and calling me all kinds of names, and even saying that they wanted to see my head in a basket under a guillotine with my baby watching, for the simple crime of sharing with people what God's creation is telling us. So contrast that with the other side of the spectrum where when South by Southwest, which is a very popular Texas festival in Austin, decided to have a South by South lawn event at the White House, and President Obama was asked, you know, what would you like to talk about to close this event? And he said, I want to talk about climate change, because it's the most important threat multiplier affecting everything, every aspect of our lives today. And they asked him, you know, who we wanted to speak with, and he said, Me. So that's how I ended up on stage with Obama and with Leonardo DiCaprio, who is asking us the questions. And the president's answers were so sensible. They were so you know, accurate, scientifically speaking, but they were so focused on how climate change affects us all and how climate solutions benefit us all. If we could just be having those conversations across the political spectrum, we would be in a very different place today.
0: And we're not having those conversations right now, unfortunately. You know, you mentioned the book that Gingrich and Maple almost did, but they did do one book together uh, about climate, and Newt Gingrich sat on the couch with Nancy Pelosi, famously for a television ad. It seems there was this period, I'd say from around 1995 to about 2010, where it seemed this issue was in flux. John McCain was an early climate champion. He had people like Sir John Houghton reaching out to evangelicals around the world. Looking back, are there any things that you wish you and the environmental movement more broadly had done differently? Where do you think the blame lies on how that political cake got baked?
1: That's a great question. <laughs> and yes, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So let's start with some context. We've known that increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would heat the planet since the 1850s. We've known that digging up and burning fossil fuels produces more heat trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere since the 1850s. We've known exactly how much warmer the Earth would get, depending on how much carbon dioxide we produce, since the 1890s, when a scientist calculated it by hand, the first climate model in the world he calculated by hand. It took him two years. But at the end, his numbers match the most up-to-date climate models we have today. So that's how long we've known that this was real. We've known that it was urgent since scientists first warned Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965 of the risks of climate change, not for the environment or the planet, but for us, for our food, for our water, for the safety of our homes, for our economy, for national security. 1965. So, when did people start to object to this? When did these arguments, when did these, oh, how do we know it's real? How do we know it's us? How do we know it's bad? When did these arguments arise? They arose less than 30 years ago. That's right, climate science is over 150 years old, and the arguments against it are less than 30 years old. So where did they come from? They didn't come from the scientific community. No, they were deliberately manufactured specifically to inspire doubt. Why? Because once the impact started to be here and now instead of in the distant future, in the 1980s and 1990s, that's when the impact started to be here and now. Crazy heat waves, rising sea levels, people started to see that something was happening now. It was no longer in the future. That meant that we had to do something about it. And doing something about it means weaning ourselves off fossil fuels. There is no way around it. There is You know, even with all of the nature-based solutions, like restoring ecosystems, planting trees, coastal wetlands, putting carbon back in the soil through regenerative agriculture, even with all the nature-based solutions we can muster, that's only gonna take up about a third of the carbon we produce. We have to cut our carbon emissions. We have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Well, back then, if you looked at a list of the richest corporations in the world, At the very top of the top 10 list was the oil and gas industry. They are the richest corporations in the world. And so just like the tobacco industry, when they were told that tobacco, you know, that smoking caused cancer, they said, okay, we could either stop producing tobacco or we could invest in fake experts to convince people that tobacco doesn't really cause lung cancer. The fossil fuel industry decided, hey, the tobacco industry really did this for a good long time. They had a good run. Now they've lost their spin doctors. We'll hire them. And there's a a book and a documentary called Merchants of Doubt that actually lays this out if if people are interested in exactly how this happened. We will hire their spin doctors and we will convince people that this isn't real and we don't want to act because it would affect our bottom line if we did. And unfortunately, that caught fire because a lot of people thought, well, How can we change? All of our lives depend on fossil fuels. There isn't anything we can do that's reasonable. And it's easier for us as humans to say it isn't real or it isn't humans or it isn't bad. or Those scientists are just making it up to line their pockets. And I get this every day. I just got that yesterday. It's easier for us to say that than it is to say it's real, but I don't want to fix it because that would make us a bad person. So we reach for these denial arguments to salve our conscience when we don't feel like there are reasonable solutions. And that's why when we have these conversations about climate change, we need to tell people there are solutions. 90% of new energy installed around the world last year was clean energy. Solar energy is now the cheapest form of electricity anywhere in the world, including in many low-income countries. In the state of Texas, we already get almost a quarter of our electricity from clean energy. And it grows more jobs. There's more jobs in the solar energy industry than there is in the coal industry, for goodness sakes. We need to tell people that there are solutions here and now that benefit our lives today, as well as helping to fix climate change tomorrow. And that is what will tip the balance.
0: You make those arguments uh, to a polarized world in your latest book, Saving Us A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. You open with an analogy to another crisis, the COVID 19 pandemic as you seem to hint at, a lot of these arguments are really not about the science. They're really about our potential solutions. They're about our psychology. They're about our sociology. They're about our fears. It sometimes takes on the cover of a scientific argument, but it's really much deeper. I I thought of uh, Mike Hulam's Why We Disagree About Climate Change book when I read your book. So what parallels do you see with the pandemic and how has your thinking changed perhaps since you wrote that opener? probably over two years ago now
1: I yes I wrote it during the early days of the COVID pandemic and my thinking on that has really just gotten even even more solidified (laughs) and even firmer the parallels between how people especially in the United States but also people in Canada where I'm from people in the UK and beyond the parallels between how we're reacting to the COVID pandemic and how we react to the climate crisis are undeniable so Rejecting 150 years of climate change science is not a cause, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of an increasingly polarized society. In the United States, people are now more politically polarized than they've been since the Civil War. And it's a consequence of the fact that we get our opinions from the social group we're part of. We, um, as Alan Jacobs, who's a theologian and a a social scientist at um, Baylor says, he says, We're no longer catechized by the church. People might show up to church for an hour a week. Who's catechizing us? Our Facebook feed, which is full of articles saying vaccines alter your DNA so God won't let you into heaven, that masks don't work, that Bernie Sanders says the only solution to climate change is to abort all the babies, and oh, climate change isn't real. We're being taught, we're being catechized by unreliable sources who are just trying to benefit themselves at our expense. So the solution is not to throw more facts at people. And you asked earlier, you know, how would I do things differently if I could go back in time? I would tell all of the scientists, I would tell all the people who are advocating for climate action, I would tell all the COVID scientists as well, just giving people more facts is not gonna change their minds because it isn't a deficit of facts. It is the fact that they don't understand why it matters to them, and they don't understand what we can do about it. We don't understand the risks, and we don't understand the rewards of action. That's where we have to focus our communication, and that's what we can do today when we have conversations. It's not about the polar bears or Antarctica. It's about what's happening where I live, and it's about what real solutions look like that my church could implement, that my school could implement, that my place of work or my city could implement, and of course that our family could implement too. But using our voice is the most powerful thing we could do. And if I could go back in time, I'd be like, stop publishing all of the, stop assuming, I should say, not stop publishing, but stop assuming that another IPCC report will change the trajectory we're on. It won't. What will change the trajectory is saying, we know the facts. Now let's talk about why it matters here and now. And let's talk about what we can do to fix it that makes sense.
0: I agree with what you're saying broadly about a lot of the disinformation that's out there. But I do think there is some role for perhaps more humility from scientists. So Dr. Anthony Fauci, Mm -hmm. he flipped on masks and did so in a somewhat arrogant way. The event that seemed to cement the recalcitrance on the right was the East Anglia email leak, confusion that came from that. Do you have regrets about the scientific community, about how it's handled some of these things?
1: Speaking of climate change specifically, no. I am often accused of arrogance, frequently, on a weekly, sometimes even daily basis, because I stand on 150 years of peer-reviewed science. And the people who are accusing me of that are saying, It's not true. And I'm like, well, how do you know it's not true? Have you taken the time to study it? Have you taken the time to learn what we've known for the last 150 years? I would honestly say that arrogance is speaking from a place of ignorance. Arrogance is, I know nothing about science. I've taken no time to learn anything about climate change other than what my Facebook feed tells me. But I'm gonna say that every single scientist in the world is wrong. That is arrogance. You mentioned the fact that emails were stolen from the East Anglia Climate Center, and it's actually thought that it was done by Russian hackers, which is relevant to the situation we find ourselves in today, because they wanted to do not to delay climate action. I was at a UK summit in 2004 where the Russian Minister of Economics at a scientific summit on the need for climate action was standing up and verbally yelling at And I would even say verbally abusing the people who were speaking and saying climate change is real. And here's how it's affecting different parts of the world. He was trying to silence them. So what was actually stolen? A bunch of emails that had scientists' candid and private thoughts about how they felt about people who harassed them, people who attacked them, people who constantly accused them of doing things that they weren't doing. And it had one line in it, one line out of thousands of emails that said, Hey, you know, can you tell me that trick you use when you're plotting the data? And the word trick is a colloquial phrase that scientists use to say, hey, how did you make that figure look good? It wasn't hiding the data. It was simply talking about something that somebody had published in the scientific literature many years previously. And so I think Stephen Colbert had a very good line. He said, now we know that if you want to keep something a secret, you just publish it in the scientific literature and nobody will ever read it. They have to go hack your emails to actually find out what you were doing. So Those scientists who were involved in that were raked over the coals. They were subject to nine different independent investigations. Each of one proved that they were completely innocent of any wrongdoing. Now, typically one investigation is enough. They were subjected to nine investigations. They were harassed so badly that some of them considered, you know, taking their own life, their 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 health was affected. Um, Some of them decided that it wasn't even worth doing what they were doing anymore. That is the vitriol. That is the abuse, that is the, the, the magnitude of the attacks that scientists receive simply for standing up and saying, climate is changing, humans are responsible, the impacts are serious, the time to act is now. The hubris is entirely on the side of people who say, oh no, climate isn't changing, or it's not humans, or it doesn't matter and there's nothing we can do. We live on a circular planet. We live on a planet with limited resources. We live on a planet that God has given us responsibility over to care for every living thing on the planet. And we live on a planet where God said in the book of Revelation, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. So it is hubris to assume that we have no role, no responsibility, and no response. Rather, if we truly believe that we are to have responsibility over every living thing on this planet, if we truly believe that we are to love each other, as we've been loved by God, then what is a failure to act on climate than a failure to love?
0: So Just to follow up a little bit on the East Anglia issue, I do recall that the trick that was at issue was, was merging two data sets and not clearly saying when one data set stopped, a tree ring data set that was pushing in the opposite direction from their overall thesis. Uh,
1: No, that's incorrect. And at this point, I would direct you and I would direct any listeners to SkepticalScience.com. So Skeptical Science is a great website that was created by John Cook, who is a fellow believer. Uh, And in my book, I actually talk about how John Cook's dad (laughs) inspired all of his work on on science denial. And what happened was they had a tree ring record from um, Russia that tree ring width and density typically tracks temperature and precipitation. So as temperatures were going up, the tree ring record was showing that temperatures were going up. But then about the 1960s, the thermometer record and the tree ring record parted ways. The thermometer record kept on going up, showing that it was getting warmer, but the tree ring record started to go uh, to start to plateau. And so scientists were saying, well, what's going on here? Why does the thermometer record go up, but the tree ring record is plateauing? Well, it turns out that there's more than one thing that affects tree ring records. And what was happening in the 1950s and 60s was massive amounts of air pollution. And air pollution stunts the tree's growth. And so the tree's growth was actually starting to decrease, even though it was getting warmer, it was starting to decrease because of air pollution. And again, scientists had published that result in Nature, which is a very high profile scientific magazine. They had published that result many years before their emails were hacked. And so again, if people really wanted to know what was going on, they could have read it in the scientific literature, but apparently nobody does. So there's all kinds of accusations, John, that I receive myself you know, on a regular basis. You're just in it for the money, they say. Well, I made a global weirding episode. I have a little YouTube series that answers frequently asked questions. And one of my favorite global weirding episodes is, you know, aren't we just in it for the money? And it's got a cartoon of, you know, a scientist with a a stack of cash on a silver plate heading to their secret lair. The reality is, is that most of us would make a lot more money in a different field. If we went you know, into industry instead of being academia, if, if we went into the oil and gas industry instead of being scientists, our salaries would be massively larger than they are today and the amount of abuse we receive would be massively smaller. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I truly believe that science is studying God's creation and today God's creation is telling us loud and clear. Climate is changing faster than any time in the history of humans on this planet and that's why it matters. We've looked at the sun and volcanoes and natural cycles and have a global weirding episode on that too and we know that today they have an alibi. In fact, according to natural factors, we should be getting very, very gradually, slowly cooler instead of warming faster and faster. I've looked at the impacts, and I've realized it isn't about saving the planet. The planet will be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. It is about saving every living thing, including us, which is exactly who we are told to have responsibility over in Genesis. And I also know that just as climate impacts all of us, climate action benefits all of us. It gives us clean air because burning fossil fuels is responsible for over 10 million premature deaths every single year. That's double the number of COVID every single year from burning fossil fuels. We also know that not only does it clean up our air, but climate solutions also give us cheaper electricity, especially in countries that don't have a lot of fossil fuel resources. A lot of low-income countries don't. Climate action creates jobs, it gives us more livable cities, it invests in nature, which also helps to prevent zoonotic diseases like COVID from jumping from animal to human populations. Climate impacts affect all of us, but they affect the poorest and most marginalized people most. The people who live on a dollar or two a day, the people who don't have flood insurance or a national guard to bail them out when disaster hits. Climate change affects the poorest and most vulnerable the most, the very ones who we're told to care for and protect and to meet their physical needs. And so again, climate action truly is an opportunity to express God's love to those who are already suffering the impacts of climate change and putting our our fingers in our ears, so to speak, metaphorically, burying our heads in the sand metaphorically, saying it isn't real, it isn't us, it isn't serious. That is denying the truth of what God's creation is telling us. It is denying the responsibility that has been given to us by God to care for every living thing on this planet. And it is denying the reality of the laws of physics that we depend on every day.
0: I guess we're, we'll have to agree to disagree a little bit on the East Anglia thing. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't gone back and looked at this in depth for a while, but but they did smash those two data sets together in, in one graph in a way that was confusing i don't think it was the aha moment that brought down all of climate science i think it got greatly distorted but my concern is that when these things are are put out there and can be abused it's it's a problem and it's, and yes well, uh, so let, let to, me stop
1: you there john Okay, so they put two data sets together on a figure, and in their peer-reviewed nature publication, they clearly explained that they had done that. So again, if anybody was confused, they only had to go read the science, which had already been published years before. So when you nitpick these tiny little things without actually looking at the original data, What you are doing is you are presenting a false narrative, which is exactly what people are doing on this issue of climate change. The reality is is that 26 and a half thousand independent lines of evidence around the world show us that climate is changing. The reality is we have looked at every single other reason why climate could be changing and it is humans. There is no other factor it could possibly be. And the reality is this, we care about climate change because it affects us. It affects the air we breathe. It affects the water we drink. It affects the nutritional quantity of, quality of the food we grow. It affects the safety of our homes. It affects national security. It affects every aspect of our lives on this planet. To care about climate change, we only have to be one thing. And that one thing is not a Democrat or a Republican or somebody who lives in the United States or even a Christian. We only have to be a human who lives on planet Earth. It matters to all of us. And there's always more to learn, of course. You know, I'm a climate scientist and I'm just fascinated by all the new things that I constantly am able to find out about how this planet works through the work I do. But we've known for over 150 years everything we needed to act. We've known for over 50 years that acting is urgent. And so the time now is the time to act. And that is where we are today, not for the benefit of a small number of people, but for the benefit of every single one of us, especially the poorest and most marginalized and most vulnerable right here in low-income neighborhoods and big cities in the United States, as well as in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia on the other side of the world.
0: And I agree with you on the big picture that graph issue. I wish that they would have just left both data sets on there. Give it give us a footnote. That's the sort of thing that yeah, I mean one shouldn't have to go back and and dig up other other journal work, a picture's worth a thousand words, they could have said that more clearly. My well, frustration- just, Sorry, John, I, John, I'm just, just like, a my, second My frustration here. is John, that,
1: John. No, no, John, my, show, my,
0: John, show, my John, show. John, John. John, <laughs> in <laughs> the
1: original scientific paper, they gave both data sets. And if you relied on the original scientific paper, which you really should have if you were so worried about this, rather than a bunch of emails that hackers had dug up and exposed, you would have had
0: both data sets. To me, it seemed very easy to put those two together and then explain that. My frustration is, I realize it's unfair for, to have to to dot every i and cross every t, but when you know that there is an entire, essentially cottage industry out there designed to 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 look at these things and distort, that was a frustration for me that that they left something that was distortable and and, and those are the sorts of well. uh, frustrations that. That i've had i think have contributed and also of course one of the most influential popularizers of that era al gore said a lot of things that were inaccurate
1: oh 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 uh, john well. john okay now again you are assuming here's your straw man you're assuming people are perfect you're assuming that every single human being can say everything exactly perfectly where nothing could be taken out of context But if you go to skepticalscience.com, they actually have a didn't Al Gore say all these incorrect things. And they go through, you know, the inconvenient truth and they find maybe one point that wasn't right. I know myself through my personal experience through the trolls that harass me on social media on a daily basis, that there are people who go through everything I say and they take out like, three words from a full sentence and if you take out three words from a full sentence you can make it look like something else and they do this specifically to distort the truth so i totally understand your frustration and i myself am outraged by this but where does that frustration and outrage where should it be pointed at it should be at the pointed at the people who are deliberately taking information out of context to distort and misrepresent and mislead people. That's where the frustration should be directed because no single human can ever string together you know, more than two words without creating an opportunity for somebody to edit a video so it looks like it's saying something it's not saying, or take three words out of context and make it look like something that was never intended to be. That is what we're up against, is truly um, bad intentions, not good faith, but bad faith attempts to say this isn't real, or it isn't us, or it isn't serious, all in the service of delaying action as long as possible for the very few who would benefit from delayed action at the expense of the billions, including us, you and me, who will suffer.
0: Well, I'm happy to, to move on. I'll just say, I, I've documented some of Gore's problems, including in the promo for his sequel to in- Inconvenient Truth, uh, where he played up a, a clear misuse of information regarding superstorm sandy so he's had some problems but
1: if if you want to talk about hurricanes we definitely can because this is a common misconception so people often think oh well you climate scientists are saying that climate change is creating hurricanes (laughs) we never had hurricanes before no 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 no. we're not saying that but what we are saying is that and this is what the science says, I'm not going to speak to what anybody else who's not a scientist said, I'm going to say what, here's what the science says. The science says is that climate change is taking our weather extremes and it's loading the dice against us. So wherever we live, we already have two sixes on our dice. So, you know, if you live along the east coast or the Gulf coast, we get hurricanes. If you live out west, you get wildfires. If you live in the Midwest, you get floods and heat waves. That's a normal part of life on this planet. But here's where climate change comes in. It's as the earth warms decade by decade, it's like it's sneaking in and taking one of the numbers on our dice and replacing it with another six, and then taking another number and replacing it with a seven. And then people are saying, how could you have three 500-year floods in three years? Or how could you have something like Hurricane Harvey that dropped over 50 inches of rain in some places, the answer is climate change is taking these naturally occurring events and it's supersizing them or making them worse. And that affects all of us. We, back in the 1980s, there was an average in the United States of $1 billion weather and climate disaster every four months. Now, over time, of course, we have more infrastructure, we have more cities, we have more things of value. And so with the same number of natural disasters, we would still expect more damages, naturally. But we also have climate change supersizing these disasters. And so today, in the 2020s, we are seeing $1 billion weather and climate disaster in the United States, not every four months, but every three weeks. That's how climate change is loading the weather dice against us. And that's what the science says. And uh, that's what the National Climate Assessment says. So. We, we are currently putting together the new one, number five, but number four was released under the Trump administration. You can find it online at science2017.globalchange.gov. And it explains how climate change is affecting us here and now and why it matters to every single one of us today.
0: Uh, as you've shown throughout this interview, you are a gifted communicator, and this may be one of your most important man bites dog storylines is that not every scientist is as good at communicating and frankly, as likable as you are. And really your book, though, it does have a lot of facts and figures in it. It's really a book, I think, about communication and about how to communicate things effectively. So tell us what works and what doesn't after more than a decade of heavy duty public engagement on this issue.
1: Sure. Um, the biggest thing that doesn't work is starting with something we disagree on rather than something we agree on. If we begin by disagreeing, typically that conversation is not gonna be constructive. We're both gonna lose from it, no matter who's right or wrong. Also, if we begin by just dumping more facts on people, more facts about you know disintegrating ice sheets and rising sea levels, we've known those facts for a very long time and they haven't caused us to act. The two biggest problems, like I talk about in my book, is that we engage in psychological distance and solution aversion. We don't understand why it matters to us here and now. We agree it's real. It will affect, you know, future generations or people who live far away or plants and animals. We don't think it affects us. And even if we're worried about it, which today in the United States, 70% of people actually are worried about it, we don't know what to do. Because we're told to change our light bulbs and recycle, but we know that that's not going to fix a global problem. And then we're told that the only way to fix it is to destroy the economy, and who wants to do that? So we think there's nothing we can do to fix it. The reality is, is that climate change is already right here. It's already affecting us right now. I mean, you can tell me anywhere you're living around the world, and I can tell you exactly what's happening where you live and how it's affecting the air you breathe, how it's affecting the safety of your home, how it's affecting the natural environment around where you live, how it's affecting your water supply. And we need to know what real solutions look like. And real solutions are often not what people think they are. Real solutions include efficiency, good old-fashioned efficiency. Not wasting, you know, waste not, want not, as our parents or grandparents told us. Through efficiency alone, we could save money and we could cut U.S. carbon emissions in half. Just efficiency, nothing else. Then, of course, we have clean energy. And it turns out that right up the middle of the U.S., right through the red states from Texas to the Dakotas, that's the best place for wind energy. And wind energy grows local jobs. You can put it on farm and ranch land to help farmers increase their revenue and provide their own crop insurance, essentially. And it cleans up our air. And it's more reliable and dependent. A year ago, last winter in Texas, we had a major freeze event. And it knocked out the power to many people for days and even weeks. 13% of that uh, power loss was because of freezing wind turbines because Texas didn't require the power producers to install the winterization equipment that keeps wind turbines running in Scandinavia and the Arctic. But the rest of it, 82% was because of frozen natural gas (laughs) and a bit from frozen nuclear as well. So clean energy can actually make us more resilient. But that's not all. We also can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil. That helps us grow better crops. We can put it back in our coastal wetlands that protect us from storm surge. We can put that carbon back in our trees that help to filter our water and our air. And again, we can build resilience to the changes that are already happening today that help to make our transportation more resilient, our buildings more resilient, our health systems more resilient, our water systems more resilient. All of these solutions, even if they didn't help with climate change, they would still give us a better future. And so really the question is, why not?
0: And I think that's a persuasive question to those who are persuadable. But in your book, you also talk about a group you call the dismissives. Who are these people and how many of them are there?
1: Well, dismissives are people who will dismiss 200 years of climate science, they'll dismiss 2,000 climate scientists, they'll dismiss 2 million scientific studies on climate change, and there's actually quite a few more than 2 million. Um, My personal definition of a dismissive is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone appeared before somebody who's dismissive, and those tablets of stone say global warming is real, they would dismiss them too. So who do we think we are to try to change a dismissive's mind? I don't think we can. I think it genuinely requires an honest-to-God miracle to do so. And I feel like I might have seen one or two miracles in my life, but I don't think I had a hand in them. Here's the good news, though. People who are truly dismissive are only 8% of the population. They might be loud. I might encounter them every day on social media. We might have one in our own family. I do, and you probably do, too. But they're only 8%. 92% of us are not dismissive. 70% of us are already worried about climate change. But only 8% of us are activated. We don't know why it matters and we don't know what we can do to fix it. So that's why, as I often say and as I say in my book, the single most important thing any of us can do is what you and I are doing right now. It's talking about why it matters to us here and now and talking about what real solutions look like that we can get on board with in our home, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our church, in our Rotary Club, in the place where we work. Solutions that save us money. Solutions that reduce our food waste and our energy waste, solutions that build local jobs, solutions that clean up our air, solutions that help with national security in an area where we're, you know, we're seeing wars being fought over resource scarcity and over access to fossil fuels. So these solutions are win-win-win solutions and oh, they might help with climate change too. But when you look at the benefits they have for us today, it really is a case of why not, right? And so that's what I love, that's what I'm excited about. And that's what I feel like we need to be having conversations about because as I talk about in my book, John Cook, who created the Skeptical Science website that answers over 200 what about questions about climate change, including the questions you brought up, he created that to help change his dad's mind. And do you think it changed his dad's mind? No, it didn't, because it was all about the facts. What did change his dad's mind? When his dad found out that there were solutions to climate change that would help his dad be an even thriftier, even more conservative, even smarter, even more independent version of who he already was, that's what changed his dad's mind. And that's what can change other people's minds too. Because to be totally honest, John, I really even, I don't even care if people agree with me that climate is changing and humans are responsible if they just agree with me on the benefits of efficiency and clean energy and nature-based solutions and resilience. If we agree on that, I don't care what they think about the science because we're working towards a better future together. And that's what really matters.
0: That's well said. And there's a lot of common ground. We should look for that where we can. Regarding that 8%, you are somewhat, I would say, dismissive of the dismissive. You're like, Hey, we yeah. just don't want to, we don't want to put our energy into that.
1: And and I would say that because no. I've tried to have a conversation with someone who's dismissive, and this is probably an underestimate, but probably about two and a half to 3,000 times. So after you've beaten your head against a brick wall two to 3,000 times, that's what I think it, it really is time to move on.
0: And I get that frustration. Everyone doesn't have to have this role, but don't we need some missionaries to the dismissives? As a Christian, we've got the parable of the lost sheep. We've got the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've got Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. It seems we still need, we need somebody who's going to to talk with these people. And as you note, it's often not going to be about facts. It's going to be about relationship. Does that give you pause about just completely dismissing the dismissives?
1: No, not at all, because I think of the parable of the sower from Matthew 13. So, what is our role as Christians when we share the gospel, or as people who know the truth of what's happening to this planet when we talk about the truth of climate change? What is our role? Our role is to sow the seed. And some of that seed uh, falls along the path where the birds come and devour it. (laughs) Some of it falls on stony ground where it doesn't get absorbed into the soil. It is not our job to to sit there and you know push that seed in and then stare at it and say, grow, grow, grow. That's not our job. It's the job of the soil to accept the seed and to let it grow or not. And so, of course, we share this news with everybody. I'm on social media every day sharing this news. And every day, um, one or more dismissives sees what I'm sharing on social media. And how do I know that? Because they reply. <laughs> um, so I'm out there s- sowing that seed. But it's not up to you and me to control other people's response to it. And when people, when dismissive, typically try to engage by arguing, by, with bad faith arguments, by refusing to look at any of the resources I send them. You know, I often, if they say, well, how do you know it's not an actual cycle? I say, that's a great question. It's because we've looked at it. Here's two resources that explain. If they're dismissive, they won't click on the resources. They just won't click. They won't listen their ears are closed and Jesus talks about those people too he talks about the people whose ears are closed who make a choice of their own free will which each one of us has to not listen
0: you had Moses and the prophets right
1: yes if people have made a choice to not listen we can't force them to listen We need to go on and talk to the people whose ears are open, whose hearts are soft, who, you know, the ground, when the seed falls on it, will take up that seed and it begins to grow. Um, And I really believe there is biblical precedent and biblical guidance for how we can focus and how we can share the truth that we've been given.
0: So let's keep going biblical here. This interview will run in Plough Quarterly, a a Christian journal. In 2015, Plough published a thematic issue featuring folks like Bill McKibben, even a guy named Murdoch an important scholar named N.T. Wright. Wright's essay was called, Jesus is Coming, Plant a Tree. He's playing (laughs) off a quote from Luther. And Wright argues for a level of continuity between this world and the redeemed new earth uh, that's spoken of in Revelation. As Wright puts it, quote, the resurrection means that what you do in the present matters into God's future. The theology of your first book, though, was not along those lines. You and your husband wrote that quote the old and the new are incompatible redemption here is not a fixing but a total replacement. That's certainly a, a view that many others share as well but I'm curious the subtitle of your book is about the case for hope and healing so what's your theology today and upon what biblical foundation do you base your efforts for hope and healing regarding climate? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, whether we have the reform perspective, which is that we are called to redeem the physical earth, or whether we have um, the more dispensationalist perspective, and frankly, in my opinion, the scientific perspective, that this earth will one day disappear. (laughs) Scientifically, I think that's pretty clear um, through stellar evolution, but uh, also many believe that from a Christian perspective that this physical world will one day disappear. Whichever belief we hold, we still have every reason we need to act today. So if we believe that we are to participate in the physical redemption of the earth, then obviously when we see pollution, when we see destruction, when we see climate change affecting every living thing on this planet, we are the ones who are called to address that. But even if we believe that this earth will eventually go away, well, back in Thessalonians, there were people who were thinking the same thing back then, humans being humans. And so there were people back in Thessalonians who were actually quitting their jobs and just sort of metaphorically folding their hands and kicking back in the easy chair of life saying, you know, come, Lord, come. The world's going to end anyway, so why do anything? And the Apostle Paul wrote to them in his inimitable way and basically said in a nutshell, get a job, (laughs) support your family, care for the widows and the poor and the orphans. And he went on to talk about how we don't know what the future holds. We don't know the day or the time. And we are called to do what we can today. We are called very clearly by Jesus to love others. We are called to express God's love to others, to care for their physical needs. And today, again, the poorest and most vulnerable people are already suffering the impacts of climate change and pollution and fossil fuel use today. So how can we help others today and let the future take care of itself? We're we're very much called to focus not on the past, not on the future, but on what we can do today as the body of Christ in the world.
0: Well, Catherine, there's so much more we could talk about. You've got a lot of other resources out there. As you mentioned, you've got a PBS digital series. I've seen you as the cover girl on the Texas Monthly that still finds me here in Idaho. Many documentaries feature you. How can people find all this? They like what they've heard, they want to hear more. How do they best find all the arms of your vast media empire?
1: Oh, (laughs) that's a very kind thing to say for something that I do a couple hours in my spare time. (laughs) But yes, I do have a website, which is my name, katherinehayhoe.com. And you can find me on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter and LinkedIn, I'm even trying out TikTok these days with some help from my cat and my son. They're both much more successful than I am.
0: That's one way Uh, to reach the Chinese, right?
1: Oh, it's the way to reach the younger generation these (laughs) days. And I have that new book that you mentioned called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. And you can find that um, in bookstores or on Amazon. You can find that on Kindle or Nook. And also you can find an audio version that I read myself.
0: More of Catherine's voice available on the audiobook. We thank you for sharing your voice with us today. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I took Catherine's advice and looked up skeptical science on the East Anglia emails. I was surprised at what I found. You can read about that through a link below the show notes. Our thanks again to Dr. Hayhoe, to Wendell Kimbrew for the use of his music, and to you for listening and telling your friends about the podcast until next time thanks for pulling up a chair find your way home find your way